Well, good afternoon. Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, coming to you from the Coming Home Network International Studios in Central Ohio and uh, coming to you over EWTN Radio, which we consider a wonderful privilege to be able to do that. Hope you're having a great day. This program is just for us to take a, uh, some time to sit back and reflect on the beauty of God's Word in the context of His church, the teacher through which we've received this wonderful gift. And uh, what I've been doing on the Deep in Scripture for a number of months is inviting my guests from the Journey Home episode to stick around a little bit more to talk more in detail about particularly what place Scripture played in their journey of faith, whether it's bringing them to discover the beauty of the Catholic Church or to continue to grow in the faith after they've come home to the church. And I've done that again uh, this week, invited Keith Major. He's a revert to the Catholic Church. He was brought up in the church, um, but then when his family uh, left the church, really for the context of, of good preaching, uh, they had lost a priest who was a great preacher, and they went looking for another great preacher and ended up in a Baptist church. And one thing to, led to another, and, and uh, Keith became very much involved in evangelical ministry uh, when he was 21. Uh, following uh, what he discerned deeply as a call of God, he moved to the Soviet Union, of all places, uh, from Louisiana, uh, was it? Louisiana to the Soviet Union. <laughs> Keith, that's a, a big jump. Uh, I don't think they have too many bus stops. Uh, uh, but specifically, one of the things he discovered he was to do was to be involved with illegally smuggling Bibles into the then-closed communist countries and to assist those who were persecuted and tortured for Christ. Um, his vocation led him to live over a decade in Russia, Poland, Saudi Arabia, and, and Qatar. On Easter 2010, Keith reverted back to the Catholic church after 19 years of being a Protestant missionary. The inward drive to return to the Catholic Church was related to his search for truth, the early church fathers, sacred tradition, the magisterium, the power of the Eucharist, and his need and desire for it. Keith and his wife, how's it pronounced? Ivona. Ivona. Ivona, right, have been married for 17 years and have three children. He is currently earning his master's in theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville, where he also works as coordinator of marketing. Keith, welcome to Deep in Scripture. It's good to be here. And let me remind the audience that if you want to hear more details of your story, if they didn't hear it Monday night on the Journey Home program, they can pick it up at the, the re-airing of the Journey Home program. If you're not sure, go to EWTN.com, look at television on the website, folks, and you can see all the air times for all the programming of EWTN in case you didn't know it. So, Keith, thanks for coming over. Now, you chose some scriptures and having been involved for so many years in the Vineyard Fellowship, in Protestant ministry, missionary work. I mean, literally, you're there to distribute 100,000 Bibles into Russia, so you really come from a, a background that believes in the power of the Word. Is that an understatement? <laughs> no, it's not an understatement. <laughs> I mean, even the idea of of taking 100,000 Bibles into Russia and then just passing them out, just that act in itself is an expression of, of the belief that the Holy Spirit can use the inspired Word of God to change hearts and bring them home. Even if these people have no training, no background, we believe the Holy Spirit can indeed touch their hearts. Yeah, he did it in my life. You know, he, he used quite a few scriptures to help me search for the answers. All right. Well, there's a bunch that we could look at, but the one that the verses that you pointed out for us to discuss today, which relate to your journey, um, and they're close to my heart too, because I think literally the, the the Sermon on the Mount, which is the context of which Keith you're choosing, I think for me came more alive after I became Catholic than before. And I don't, because I don't think it was until I appreciated the authority of the church and appreciated the place of Scripture within sacred tradition that helped me reread Jesus. Because for so long, I was primarily a Pauline. I used the Pauline lens to look at everything. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, I don't know if this is true of your background, 
before you had an awakening to the Sermon on the Mount. But often it was through the Pauline lenses and we kind of set the actual teachings of Jesus aside. Was that true at all for you? And, and it, it is for many Protestants, but I didn't know if that's true for you. I was heavy on the, uh, the Gospels, okay. but for being a pastor for over a decade, I can't, I really can't tell you if I, pre I preached one sermon from the Sermon on the Mount. I know, I know. Um, mainly because I didn't understand it. Yeah. Um, I think I preached things from the Sermon on the Mount that could be connected with uh, conversion and evangelization. Don't hide your light under a bushel. Mm -hmm. You are the salt of the earth. You know, all those things that therefore go out and tell, go out and live your faith, or you've got to be converted to Jesus and then go out and tell. But the stuff about living holy lives, I wasn't sure how to deal with myself. And I think that's what you're saying. I mean, what, how do you preach those to, to certain congregations? <clears throat> I think if you would give a pop quiz to people and ask, where is the Sermon on the Mount found? And I have given this pop quiz to many people. You'll be amazed at what they say. <laughs> um, very few know. They, they would say the Gospels. I'm like, okay, you're, 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 you're getting warmer. But to narrow it down to Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I think we would be amazed at how many people would even know that. Or even to tell them, what can you tell me is found in the Sermon on the Mount? Then you get even more puzzled looks. That, isn't that where it says that God helps those that help themselves? <laughs> um, I don't know. <laughs> that ain't in there. <laughs> but just an example of where some people have a hard time with the Sermon on the Mount is I actually have some neighbors who are deeply committed Christians. They have a home church. I think they go to a different church on Sunday, but they also have a home church. They refused to pray the Lord's Prayer because they insist that Jesus didn't give that to us to be prayed over and over and over again because that'd go against what he says in, in, in you know, practicing, people are practicing your piety before men are to be seen by them repeating the same old words. So they, you don't ever pray the Lord's Prayer. It must be spontaneous for it to be real prayer. And they can take that then with everything in the sermon and say, well, that was for that time. That's not for us. And I'm assuming that's a bit of where you've come from, at least in your background. Yeah. The, the Sermon on the Mount really doesn't make sense unless you read it in its entirety. Because when you read it as a beginning and end, it will begin to make more sense. And I started to do that for a season of, of my life after finishing a a 21-day fast. I'm like, okay, God, you need to defibrillate my heart and awaken it. And <laughs> and and actually, the I decided not to read a book, but I actually decided to just focus in on the Sermon on the Mount for a period of time. And I read it, and I studied it about three hours a day for over three months. And then my eyes opened that... Um, Here is the best speaker that's ever walked the face of the earth. And he began it with an incredible introduction, which is the Beatitudes. And he concluded this beautiful sermon with a parable that we all know. And if we would ask people, do you know the parable of the guy who builds his house on the rock? They would go, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, do you know where that's found? Most people would not know that it is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. So when you look at it as whoever hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. I always thought the rock was the Bible. Because if I would say, hey, what's the rock? They go, oh, it's the Bible or it's Jesus. And I go, well, according to what Jesus is saying right here, the rock is the man who does the Sermon on the Mount. And when the storms come, which I mentioned earlier, storms hit all of us. And the older we get, the more storms hit us. You lose a job, you lose a car, you lose a spouse. And 
when I find someone in their 50s and 60s that has this vibrant, buoyant, passionate heart pursuing God, you know what I say? I've just met a miracle. <laughs> because the, the older you get, the more storms you weather. And here is the good shepherd Jesus giving advice to the sheep. Do you want to make it through the storm? The way to make it is to do the Sermon on the Mount, because the very next verse is those of you who hear these words of mine, the sermon, and you do not do them, you're foolish, and you're building on sand, and when the storms come, your house is not going to make it. And it's the, I would say, one of the key reasons that so many non-Catholic preachers, especially the traditions that come out of the Reformation, have set the Sermon on the Mount aside is specifically because of the verses you're talking about. Because the operative word is do. That's the reason. Starting with the emphasis on, uh, you know, Luther saying that we are saved by faith alone and not by works, emphasizing and actually I don't have the time to get into all, but taking out of context the statement in Ephesians that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works, that since we are not saved by what we do, by what we believe, as Luther would have said, John Calvin picked up after that even more so in spades, then what do we do with those passages in the New Testament that say it's all based on what we do? And so we end up with this plan A, plan B theology that said there was a plan A before the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that was works righteousness. But after the death and resurrection, since that didn't work, now we have we're saved by grace through faith alone and not by what we do. And so that's why those theologies take the first part of Romans and where it says we will be held accountable when we die for what we have done. Well, that must be referring to plan A, not plan B. So we take all of this wonderful stuff that you're going to talk about and set it aside and set it aside and maybe pick little pieces of it that, like I said, might refer to evangelization. But this idea of, of really what we do. And the thing that struck me, and this is why what you're going to be talking about, Keith, is so important. That those of you who are listening, especially if you're ministers like I was, I was a Presbyterian pastor, in that is, what's the gospel? And if, if I were to ask you, what is the gospel? And Keith, if, if you and I back look back 20 years ago, what we, what we would have summarized as a gospel? In John 3.16. Exactly. You know, God so loved the world that he sent his son, who was going to believe in him, would not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, he died. He rose. He's alive. That's the gospel message. What struck me, though, is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and everyone, it begins by telling us that Jesus went out and preached the gospel. But nowhere in Matthew, Mark, and Luke does it tell us a gospel like we just repeated. It's in John, but not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So what is the gospel message of Matthew, Mark, and Luke? I would say, here is Jesus who, let's look at it from another angle. <clears throat> Here's these devout Jews that are obeying the Ten Commandments. You know, like the rich young ruler. Yeah. What must I do? Yep. Obey the commandments. I've done it. Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm following you, Jesus. And I think he just kind of, being the good shepherd that he, <laughs> that he is, he's in a way, said, you know what, I am the one who handed the Ten Commandments to Moses. I was there. And you, th you think you're doing well by doing that, but let me shed some more light on this. I am not here to abolish the law. I'm here to shine more light on the law. And, you know, that's when you get into the parts of Matthew chapter 5 when he says, those of you who have anger in your heart, you've already committed murder. Well, hold on now, because the Ten Commandments says you shall not murder, but now you're telling me that if I have anger in my heart, I've murdered? And he's like, yeah, because it's like, 
we we dance so close to this line and he says as a good shepherd i want you far away from the cliff because you don't just wake up one morning and start pulling the trigger murder happens in your heart long before you pull the trigger it happens with anger he's like let's nip this in the bud where it begins because adultery begins with lust and so he is expounding the Ten Commandments by saying, don't have anger, and don't lust, and don't divorce, and don't have retaliation, and let your yes be yes. And your and this was revolutionary yeah, I, to these people when they heard that the first time. It's more than just knowing the ten so that you can pass it on a test. I, I can remember nine out of ten of them, so you got 90%. Or is it more than, well, let's see, I haven't murdered you know, I haven't committed adultery. I haven't lied. You know, it's so much deeper than that. And we all know that in the, if you compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you realize, as well as John, that the chronologies are a little different from one gospel to the next, which kind of says that the chronologies in the, the Bible may not be the exact chronology, exactly the way things happened in the order of Christ, but they're the, the stories of exactly what happened passed out. And I've often wondered, the rich young ruler, reason I mentioned that, and he comes to Jesus, what must I do? What must I do to be saved or to experience eternal life? And he says, commandments. I've always done them. So Jesus says there's more. And he summarizes it, right? Go, sell, give it away, follow me. Whoa. How do I go give, sell, and follow. How? Sermon on the Mount. It's almost as if, okay, tell us more about this, Jesus. You want to know what it means to go, sell, give, follow? Here's what it means. And here comes the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, like you said, it's impossible for us to, to cover it all in our one little program because you really need to cover it as a whole. But it was the verses that you said that um, that you just repeated at the end of it that awakened you to it, right? Yes. That you need to uh, hear and do it. That's what started you. It started me, but when, when it, it was the verse that said, those of you who hear these words of mine and you do not do them, you're foolish. And I said, okay, I, I now know that this is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So I read it again, started with Matthew chapter 5, and when I got to the end of verse, I never could grasp the Beatitudes. So let's just go past the Beatitudes right now. And I, and I camped out at Matthew chapter 5, 48, be ye <laughs> perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Because this is, this, is the, this is the high point on the Sermon on the Mount. And if that is parting of the do, <laughs> I'm not doing that. But then I guess, I guess, as a Protestant, I thought, no one's perfect except Jesus anyway. So how do I even apply that? And so... And often Protestants, what they'll do is they'll, they'll use that. We're called to be perfect as Heavenly Father is perfect. One. Two. We can't. So three, when you stand before the gates of heaven and God asks, why should I let you in? You can't point to yourself because of your uncleanness. You always point to Jesus and his righteousness will cover you. That was the Protestant answer for that. That was Luther's answer mm -hmm. for that. So he looked, He saw that passage, but he didn't see it as a challenge for us to do anything. It's, it was a challenge for us to give up and just give it all to Jesus, and he's going to cover me. Except it doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. That's not biblical theology. So you're confronted with the word do. Yes. And that means be as perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How perfect is he? Completely perfect. <laughs> 100%. So a friend of mine challenged me. He says, to make it more digestible, how about if we just replace the word perfect to be obedient? And I'm like, okay, that, that's more doable. So be ye, let's just rephrase it to be, be ye 100% obedient. And I'm like, okay, that is more doable than being perfect, but be obedient to what? So I read the Sermon on the Mount again, and I, I was in a dilemma <laughs> because there, <laughs> there, there is 
anger in our hearts and lust. And our yeses aren't yeses and our noes aren't noes. And we do have a tinge of revenge in us. So I read that in Matthew chapter 5 and I go, oh, I thought I was doing so good like the rich young ruler obeying the Ten Commandments, but I am infested with these other things. But then I read Matthew chapter 6 and he says you need to pray, you need to fast, and you need to give alms. And fasting, oh, why do I, <laughs> why does it say when you fast? And so I read it again and I realized this was my dilemma that I'm not even doing half of the Sermon on the Mount. So what are you telling me? I'm telling you that I'm building on sand, and when storms really do hit me, I'm not going to make it. That's a dilemma when you're telling that to a pastor who I was. You mean after smuggling in 100,000 Bibles, after seeing thousands converted, after doing fastings for long seasons that I won't make it? It's not what I did in the past. It's how am I living right now today? And right now today, if I were to die, I wouldn't make it. And something began to break in my heart, and I read it again because I always thought the first beatitude wasn't applied to me because I, I grew up in this loving home. Mom loved dad. Dad loved mom. And they hugged and they kissed. And there was no divorce in my family. And and I, I grew up in this bubble. So I thought the poor in spirit were people from Bangladesh and India yeah, yeah. because it didn't apply to me. But all of a sudden when I see the dilemma that I am not doing not even half of the Sermon on the Mount, I'm not even doing a fourth of the Sermon on the Mount, when I read Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I realized this is applying to me because I am bankrupt. I am spiritually bankrupt, which led me to mourn. Because I think I shared in, our, in the earlier program that when I was in this prayer room, God told me, I'm not a river, like a lot of your vineyard songs were yep. I'm not a river, I'm an ocean, and so far in your life you're big toe deep. I cried then as well, because am I that shallow? Well, then I begin to realize I am shallow, and I'm near bankrupt, and the morning led me to do more extreme lifestyle changes in my life. And so that got me over the first and second beatitude. Um, and let me, again, back up just a little bit, Keith, because we are going to be facing a break here in a little bit. I want to make sure that we can have a nice break to come back to it. And, and I just want to draw us back also to that. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that you must do what he's been telling you. That for many outside the church, well-meaning Christians, um, their theology prevents them from going any deeper than that at all. We're not called, we're not responsible for what we do anymore because our, our will is depraved. Or once saved, always say, I accept it as my Lord and Savior, therefore it doesn't matter what I do. Of course, out of gratitude, I should live in obedience, but if I don't, I don't. Perfect, and every father is perfect. I mean, what? What, what am I going to do with that? And so their theology stops them short, thin, very thin, you know. And what, what, what really challenges me is that as you ended up reading the spiritual fathers and we even reflect on the perfection of God, that's why I challenge a little bit, what is, how does it mean God's perfect? It is impossible for us to even come to an, a little understanding of what that means, the perfection of God, because we can only think in human categories, right? And so we end up putting God in a box that we can't even put ourselves in because we can't be as perfect as he is when, in fact, we have to look at God in his humility and his sacrifice. Um, how is God the perfect sacrifice? That's hard. I'll even look at our Lord Jesus. We'll talk about it when we get back. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Keith Major. You're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. 
Get an insider's look at the latest information from EWTN. Sign up for Wings, EWTN's weekly email newsletter. Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the Wings link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN. Get your Wings today. Hi, this is Jerry Usher reminding you to listen to Vocation Boom Radio Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern exclusively on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Each week I bring you dynamic interviews with bishops, priests, vocation directors, even seminarians and those who support them, all in an effort to assist the Holy Spirit in what is truly a vocation boom around the world. That's Vocation Boom Radio Saturdays at 5 p.m. Eastern only on EWTN Radio. CH Resources is excited to offer you Marcus Grodi's latest book, Thoughts for the Journey Home. If you're not Catholic but are looking seriously at the Catholic Church, or if you've recently entered the Church, this book will provide you with wisdom and encouragement for the journey. And if you're a lifelong Catholic, it makes a great gift for family and friends you're hoping will come home. To order a copy, visit our website at chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Keith Major. He's what you would call a returning Catholic, and he's come home. And today we're talking a bit about his uh, the way that the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount really awakened him to that. And part of it was recognizing that he certainly had heard the words of Jesus, but he hadn't been always that faithful in doing them. Is that the right way of putting it, Keith? Yeah. Um, and maybe even knowing what you're supposed to do. Uh, and I would have to say that's one of the reasons we in the Coming Home Network work so hard to reach out to our separated brethren to come home to the church because there's a, there's a bazillion opinions out there on what one has to do with what you've heard. Sometimes you don't even, aren't even expected to do it anymore because you assume at the beginning you can't. So why try? And there are theologies out there with that. So you had that awakening, Keith, and... Uh, well, yeah, you know, I guess we always think, are we doing it? Well, yeah, I, I, I'm doing the first commandment. I'm loving the Lord with all my body, soul, heart, and strength. And, okay, give me more info, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and going back to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the, the beatitude started to make um, going meeting so many persecuted people living in, the, uh, yeah. in Russia, living in the Middle East, in the Iron Curtain, I heard stories where people were tortured for Christ that I don't want to share on this because it would just, just some people just, mm. so somehow I think as In fact, a, they're probably so beyond belief to many moderns that they might not even believe that that's really happening, well, but yeah, it but, is happening. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, when, <clears throat> I guess when I lived in the Soviet Union, they did a lot of psychological torture, so we can capture the pastor, but let's torture his daughter daughter and wife in front of his eyes and that'll make him change and these pastors are like no how can you watch your daughter being tortured and your wife in front of your eyes all you have to do is just deny him deny god he'll understand he used peter didn't he (laughs) just deny him go home repent and one day i was praying and um god told me if that pastor that so impacted you, his story, um, denied me, I would have forgiven him. But there'll, be a, there'll, there'll come a day in your life, Keith, that you won't have that second opportunity. What you say in that moment will decide, will you go to heaven or not? And so looking at the eighth beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. 
theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, persecuted for my namesake, these are basically the people that I was meeting in the Soviet Union and in Eastern, mm-hmm. in, the, in the Middle East. And for a Western Christian to think, God will give me supernatural grace to do the right thing when the gun's at my head. They're living in la-la land. <laughs> because that's kind of like trying to cram for a final exam the night before. If you're not prepared for it, you're gonna you're not gonna make it. So here's so what what I'd like to challenge, and this is kind of how I looked at the Beatitudes, is there is no way on earth that I will be able to face my persecutors in the face and say the correct thing if I have not done the Beatitude before it, which is the prerequisite. Yep. Yep. So what is that? Well, that is do I want to be and so there, there's like I can't do God's part, and God can't do my part, just like Jeremiah 33.3. Call to me, God tells Jeremiah, and God says, then I will answer you. So I have to do the calling, and after I call, he answers. So God says, if you do this, I'll do this. So you want to be called a son of mine? Absolutely. We'll do the seventh beatitude. Well, what is that? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Okay, so it would take me having a peacemaking heart to be able to face my persecutors and still not deny, okay, how do I become a peacemaker? Well, do you want to see God? Of course, I think both of us want to see God. Well, there's a prerequisite. Blessed, which is the sixth beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Okay, well, what's the prerequisite for having a pure heart? Well, it's the fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And how do I become more merciful? Because that's really hard. I want mercy, this hard giving mercy. Well, hunger and thirst for righteousness, and you'll be filled. Okay, and how do I hunger and thirst for more righteousness, which is then the third beatitude? Blessed are the meek, for... uh, they shall inherit the earth. And, and meekness is not the same as weakness. This is like controlling your strength. And you know, we can explain that thing, but just for the sake of time, we'll just quickly go over it. So how do, I be, how do I become meeker? Well, do the second beatitude. Well, what's that again? Well, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And why am I mourning? I'm mourning because I am poor in spirit, and I need supernatural help and grace from God to live these things out, the rest of Matthew chapter 5, to to resist anger and to resist lust and to resist divorce and to resist retaliation. So the thing is, is I heard this this metaphor before, and I just, I, I love it. It's, if you would ask God, he wants to rest in us, what would be your favorite flowers I can plant in the garden of my heart, which is my spirit? You know what he would probably say? He would probably say the eight Beatitudes. If you can cultivate the eight Beatitudes to grow inside your garden, it would be so attractive to me. And you would produce this aroma of sanctity, which is really rare on earth. And it would not only attract God, but it would attract other people as well because it's something so rare. And so how do you grow a garden? Well, you gotta pull weeds and you have to fertilize it. Well, if there's eight flowers, well, what are the weeds I'm dealing with? Well, the, the weeds are the anger and the lust and the divorce and the making oaths that you can't commit to and the retaliation. So I have to aggressively pull those weeds out of my garden if the eight beatitudes are to grow and flourish. Well, is that it? Well, no, then I have to fertilize it and put the good stuff in it. Well, what's that? Well, I have to, Matthew 6, pray, fast, and give. And I have to do both and. Um, I can't just pull weeds and not do the praying, fasting, and giving. It's, uh, it's the both and. And th- that was something that just became alive to me in the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, yeah, that, and it's interesting that you've gone through that because, as you know, 
that my own discovery of the, the staircase of Beatitudes was awakening to my own journey. I didn't discover it until after I'd become a Catholic, until I read in the early church fathers that uh, some of the early fathers recognized fairly early on, in fact, one particularly Chromatius of Aquileia recognized that these eight Beatitudes were not just eight random people, eight, but that they're, they're a flow, they're a journey, they're a staircase, they're a ladder parallel with uh, the ladder in the Old Testament, you know, mm-hmm. getting the easy goes ladder. So, um, and I'll just tell the audience, in case you're interested, if you went to our website, chnetwork.org, and there's a resources section, and I have up there my reflection on the Beatitudes, just so they know, Keith, if they want to dig, they say, wait, what's Keith talking about, this journey of, of one to the next? Why? And it's up there. And you can start there, and then if you want to talk more about it, you can, you can check out with uh, Keith Major. dot uh, WordPress. dot com. That's his blog. And if you want to talk more about the Beatitudes with him, you can do it with me too. But you can also go to Keith Major because what I found in the Beatitudes is that those those first three are actually a step down before we start stepping up again with the hunger in your heart. That it's like, uh, you know, poverty of spirit, mourning for our sinfulness, uh, humility and meekness for our self-centeredness, you know, cleansing ourselves so we can start turning back up again, hunger and thirsting. And so to even get to the point of being able to stand with grace in persecution, we've got to dig a lot of junk out of ourselves so that there's more room for God. And he describes that in that wonderful journey of the Beatitudes, which you were discovering on your own journey. Yeah. And in, in, in a way, <clears throat> this journey has um, really lead me to the Catholic Church, the Sermon on the Mount, because um, I realized that our, our primary calling in life is stated in Matthew five forty eight, the be ye perfect. And, you know, that's how we're going to be evaluated. That's how our life is going to be evaluated when we see him face to face. And not, you know, our job or our marriage or, or, or what we've done. And, you know, when I, when I started to, to, to sense that if I'm not doing the sermon— I'm not going to make it, which then, you know, when I read one, you know, a Catholic saint say, you know, that uh, only saints make it to heaven, which I thought, well, how can I be beatified because I'm not even a Catholic? Um, In fact, we're going to take a break there, Keith. When you get back, the first thing I want you to talk about is the conundrum of that statement, only saints make it to heaven. Okay. I mean, only saints make it to heaven. What does that mean? Works righteousness. Does that mean I've got to, you know, and, and I think that's the the paralyzing effect of a statement like, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, or only saints make it to heaven, that stops many of those outside the church that don't understand the the helps that Jesus has given us so that we're not left on our own. Mm-hmm to do what he expects. And I think that's where it stops many people short of experiencing the joy that Christ promised. So let's come back to that when we get back after the break. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Keith Major, coming to you from the Coming Home Network International over EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a non-profit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, 
please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Keith Major. We ended with the, um, it could be a conundrum, uh, only saints make it to heaven. Only saints. And, and I didn't talk in those terms when I was a Presbyterian. <laughs> you know, the people that made it to heaven were the called, the chosen, the elect. But the idea of a saint implies that it wasn't merely what God did for me, as a Calvinist would say, but that we have a part to play in that. Yep. You know, the Beatitudes don't make any sense at all without Matthew 5.48, the be ye perfect. Mm-hmm. It's all in the same chapter. The uh, For me, I realized I'm not living the Sermon on the Mount. I, I'm aware of that now. And that was the dilemma mm-hmm. of me mourning. I tell you, I, I, I mourned. And the mourning did lead me to start fasting again. Mm-hmm. And the fasting and the prayer was the defibrillator in my heart to start awaking me. So I began to pray specifically, this is going to need some supernatural outside help and assistance. So I begin to pray every day, every day, <laughs> you know, from like Ephesians 1.17, Lord, release your spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of who you are. I need your help. I need your graces. To, I need your supernatural ability to live out the Sermon on the Mount because this is hard and few find this way. And I don't want to be part of the people in Matthew chapter 7 who has done great healings and deliverances in your name. And I'm going to stand before you and going to say, who, who are you? <laughs> I, I never knew you because that's in the Sermon on the Mount as well. Yeah. So. The more I prayed, you know, I, I thought I saw a light at the end of the tunnel, like, okay, this is where I need to aim towards. And I started to read some Catholic saints, some mystics, Bernard of Claveau, John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, and I, I realized that their holiness was contrib- the, the reason that they were living, like, having this easier ability was because of the sacraments. Now, I didn't know what that was as a Protestant. I never taught on a sacrament. What, what is a sacrament? I've, I've heard maybe other denominations because in my denomination, we had zero sacraments. We called them two ordinances, baptism and communion. But when I began to read some of these Catholic saints, they said that the sacraments basically gave the graces to live this type of Sermon on the Mount lifestyle. And I pursued it for a year and a half. How, how, can I, how, can I, how can I have these graces without the sacraments until I think God just had me cornered one, uh, the fall of 2009 when I was probably in the darkest season <laughs> of my life, and I realized I prayed for these graces, and I guess I've gotten some, but I need them more. And so basically the Sermon on the Mount led me to the sacraments, and I discovered them more fuller in the church fathers. And I kid you not, after I started to partake of the sacraments, pursuing the Sermon on the Mount has been so much easier, Marcus. It's really supernatural. Um, the, the, the more that I receive the sacraments, the Sermon on the Mount is becoming easier and more doable and more attainable. Yeah, something that I didn't see as a Protestant, and it may come because of my Calvinistic training, was I had a presumption that we could not not, we could not not sin, okay, because of our depravity. The idea of being perfect this side of heaven was an impossibility. But we were thinking through categories in which we do it on our own. And we cannot not sin on our own. But Mary is our model because she did not not sin because of her will, 
it's because of the grace of Christ. And she was full of grace. Yeah. So she's our model of what it's about. Uh, we honor Mary because she lived in obedience, but aided by grace. And that's our calling. You know, that, that wonderful passage in Romans 7, that whole chapter, which I'm sure you never, it never applied to you. In other words, where Paul says, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't do it. What's going wrong with me? I got sin that dwells within me. I, I can't. I know what I'm supposed to do. I can't do it. Well, in Romans 8, he basically says, it's by the Spirit that gives us the power to do. Not us. It's the Spirit. And that's what Jesus is telling his people. Even those Jews that were in his audience before the death and resurrection, he's saying, with the help of God, you can live obediently. But they did need a savior. I mean, so there's the graces that come from his salvation, which we have now, which they were not just divvy. There were people in the Old Testament who were given graces. David, we know, did, and he failed. Solomon was given graces, failed. Keith was given graces, though you never fail, right, Keith? Oh, I failed all this. <laughs> <laughs> we do fail. Yeah. And so we pick ourselves up. And it says in 1 John, if he who confesses his sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a work of grace, once again. Um, you know, I'm thinking, Keith, let's say you're speaking to some of your old buddies out there that just don't quite hear what you're saying. What would you want to say to them about hearing the Beatitudes, maybe for the first time, and then doing them? Where do you begin to hear and do? Hmm. Something that's worked for me is um, I guess so many of my friends, they ask, <clears throat> how can you hear God's voice? I mean, that, that, that's very crucial in, in our lives because how do we even know our purpose? Do you, you, you think you can really know why God put you on earth by yourself? I need him to tell me. And so for so many times in the past, you know, when I was desperate, you know, I was going to God in prayer and in fasting. But just praying and fasting and giving doesn't cut it. That is like, I told you, like planting a garden. Could you imagine planting a garden and only pouring fertilizer on the garden without even weeding the garden well then the weeds are going to grow <laughs> along with the flowers there's going to have to take some doing as well and resisting you know these the the, the, the anger and the lust and, and the other things mentioned in chapter five i would i would just challenge things that i've been challenging my friends now that i i joined the catholic church last year is The sacraments have made so much of a difference in my life. I go to confession. I try to make it twice a month. Sometimes I have to do it once a week. But when I'm, when I'm confessing my sins, that, that is a sacrament when I'm doing it to a priest. And the advice he gives me to pull these weeds is great advice, as well as taking the sacrament of the, you know, the body of Christ. It's whenever Jesus begins to assimilate me and begin to change me from the inside out. Marcus, I, I don't know how to put it. It's, it's supernatural and it's miraculous, but when I, when I partake <laughs> in those sacraments, it, it's, the, the Sermon on the Mount does become more obtainable. It's, it's not like it's easy because Jesus still says that few few find this road because we want we want the easy way out we want the wide road but the wide road isn't going to lead to him it's the narrow road it costs something to to fast even prayer is a form of fasting because the time right. that i spend praying i can be watching tv and so i'm like i'm gonna, i'm even going to give you my time to pray instead and my money well man my money is my strength so if i that's a form of fasting as well. It's, it's chapter 6 of Matthew. I mean, why don't we just do what Jesus said to do 
in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I mean, this is the sermon that I think he spoke everywhere he went. It wasn't a one-time thing. It wasn't the Sermon on the Mount only. It was like when he was in the tabernacle, when he was in the synagogue, when he was out by the seaside. This is the gospel. Yeah, this is. And there's, I mean, what those three things are, prayer, in fact, in the order they're given, which is alms, prayer, and fasting, are really, and this is something I'm going to write on in a little bit here in a blog, I think, because I think it's worth reflecting on, and that is that our, the two great commandments, loving the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, that they are commandments for our senses, putting our senses in order, because the senses are the windows of our soul, what we see, what we hear, taste, touch, what we do with our bodies, right? And the way we love God is through those senses we control what pollutes our soul so that it's holy. But how we live out the next commandment is how we use those senses to go out. Prayer is upward. Almsgiving is outward. And fasting is a way of disciplining all of our senses, not merely our stomach. Mm-hmm. It's our eyes, our ear. In fact, he says, you know, you're not supposed to tell anybody that you're fasting. You know, I mean, it's about you. It's not trying to look holy. It's about disciplining your whole body in line with those two great commandments. That's what those those two great commandments, and then giving of your all that you are, giving it all upward to the Lord in prayer, and then disciplining it, and sometimes starving it so you can start hearing God in what you're praying. And, and that's what you had discovered yourself, and really you had seen a really great awakening within yourself. Yep. I talked too much at the end. Keith, I apologize, because I know you had so much more that you wanted to share with us, but uh, we'll get you back here sometime. What's that website in case somebody wants to get in contact with you? It's keithmajor.wordpress.com. All right. And uh, thanks for joining us. Keith. It was a pleasure. All right. And God bless you and your work at Franciscan and your continued studies. Are you done with your master's program yet? Oh, I have two years left. Okay. <laughs> Finished one year already. All right. Well, well good good luck on that and, uh, and, and with your studies. Uh, and it's got to be a, a blessing for you to be challenged that way in those courses. Thank all of you for joining on this program. Go to chnetwork.org and you'll find out more about the Coming Home Network and Deep in Scripture and all of the archives. And you can watch us live here on video. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. God bless you. See you again next week.